This is not the media. This is hell. It's election day, and that means anarchists are poised to burn and loot, so we better board up all our stores and secure our homes because those anarchists are planning on spreading disorder and violence like they always do and have always done in the past. At least that's what the media wants us to believe, and they've done a pretty good job getting us all to believe just that. Anarchy, we are told, is chaos and nothing more. That all anarchists want to do is sow that chaos. To what end? Who knows? We never find out that part when we're told about anarchists in the media. So as we celebrate what passes for a democracy, what exactly is this threat of anarchism that leads police to act so violently, so aggressively against anarchists? Why, of all the political concepts, is anarchy seen almost like a disease. Well, to understand that, first we would have to understand what anarchism actually is. By definition, it's nothing more than challenging the status quo to realize egalitarian principles and foster cooperative, non-dominating behaviors. It is the revelation that the state is tyranny and government is violence, and a reconsideration of what property is that leads to both that violence and tyranny. No wonder it's such a threat to our system of living that the wealthy need to send in their shock troops to put it down whenever anarchists are out and about. We'll do our best at trying to understand anarchy and why it is seen as so dangerous to the status quo. We speak in a few with political theorist Ruth Kinna, author of The Government of No One, The Theory and Practice of Anarchism. Ruth is a professor of political theory at... Loughborough University, working in the Department of Politics, History, and International Relations, where she specializes in political philosophy. Ruth is the author of William Morris, The Art of Socialism, and co-editor of the journal Anarchist Studies, which you can find at anarchiststudies.org. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed live stream podcast radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Jess Lipka. Jess, it's Tuesday. It must be you. How are you? How have you been since the last time I saw you? I'm great. It's just me, so I'm not muffled today and um, just moved. I'm doing great. No mask at all? Look at that. So did you move out of your uh, neighborhood or are you still in Hyde Park? Um, I actually just moved into Hyde Park. Oh, no kidding. So that's what you were waiting on, I see. So please remind us, Jess, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? I may need to check with Alex on that. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'll tell you. Uh, this week's question, Mel, is what happens? All answers are read on air this week again. It's what happens. But if you, uh, all, re- all answers are going to be read on air this week. Again, question from hell, what happens? As in what happens tonight with the election? So if you want to win a special prize, get your accurate prediction in by 5 p.m. U.S. Central Time today. And you can win the Question from Hell prize for the most accurate prediction of what happens tonight. You have to have that answer in by 5 p.m. U.S. Central Time today, Tuesday, election time. The person with our favorite answer to this week's Question from Hell gets our new Gray on Black This Is Hell t-shirt. You can check out the new Gray on Black This Is Hell t-shirt and all our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will uh, find all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. So the person with the most accurate answer to the Question from Hell 
And that answer has to be in by 5 p.m. today. The question from hell again, what happens? That person wins the new gray on black This Is Hell t-shirt. Now, we will also be announcing our favorite answer to this week's question from hell at the end of Thursday's show. So not necessarily what we thought was the most accurate answer, but what we liked the most will be revealing the winner of this week's question from hell at the end of Thursday's show, as we do each week. Jess will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. And Jess, one other question for you. Do you have any plans for election night? Will you be watching poll numbers tonight? What are you planning on doing tonight for the election? Any idea whatsoever? Uh, Drinking. (laughs) (laughs) That's about it? I understand. Uh, yeah, friends and drinking. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. So you're going to have a party at your house? Or you're going to have friends over? Um, yeah, I'm going to go over to friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sweet, man. I used to go and have election night parties, and then they got me really depressed. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Personally, I seriously don't know if I can put myself through this again. Another freaking election night with talking heads regurgitating speculation they've been droning on and on about for the past two years. Well, ignoring everything else that is happening in the world, you know, the kinds of things that the policies of the president of the United States actually affect instead of the media's laser-like focus on how young people of color vote or old white seniors happen to have been polling long before a single primary ballot was ever cast. Stuff like the ongoing war on terror, the forever war, which never seems to stop. The only aspect of it that has ended is the public paying any attention to the ongoing war. That war that has been killing innocent civilians in various locations all over the world wasn't even an election issue or a debate topic other than questions akin to, why do you think you can do a better job fighting terrorism and keeping America secure? Which frames the whole war as if the United States is not the aggressor with military installations in well over 100 countries around the world. Somehow that global military presence makes us the victim? Watching those actors on TV play journalists with their digital tote boards, constantly tapping state after state to change its color from red to blue or blue to red or whatever color they use for undecided, is offensive to the 300 million people worldwide who have color blindness like me, and especially those who suffer from trit trit anomaly, trit anomaly, which is a kind of red-blue color blindness. Which means I will be asking my ever-so-patient girly which states are leaning Biden and which are leaning Trump as she explains each network's map to me because the types of reds and blues they use vary and all I see is darker and lighter versions of gray so she will have to interpret each and every graphic for me this evening which is likely as annoying to her as it is frustrating to me. And those reds and blues, they really do vary. At times, to me, the reds are darker than the blues, and the blues at other times are darker than the reds. Which all means, as the returns come in, there will likely be tallies that are very upsetting, and my inability to know how the map reflects those changes, and my request for assistance from my girly in understanding those graphics will likely lead to some interpersonal tensions, so I got that to look forward to on election night. The potential for an argument. But I've been through this before, and at best, its whole election night is unsettling. At worst, it's an exercise in futility that leads straight to depression. How will we be reacting tonight's or tomorrow's or next week's or next month's outcome of the election, whether it's determined by the people, which it won't be because the greatest democracy in the world does not believe in the will of the people, 
the Electoral College, an institution of white supremacy that has more power of the election than votes by the people, or by the courts, which is the least democratic of all the institutions that may determine who is president come January of next year. In other words, the group that will most likely select the next president, no matter what the people actually want. Whether you support Biden, Trump, or Howie Hawkins, our reaction may be limited to only a few possibilities, just like our politics and political imagination are both limited within the pathetic parameters of political discussion and debate we have here in the U.S. You know, for having a freedom of speech within our founding documents, there sure are a lot of political theories we are not allowed to discuss. And if we do, we're dismissed as either a naive utopian or a criminal terrorist. Which is why during today's Election Day show, we are talking anarchy. And on tomorrow's show, we will discuss Marxism as the media simply uses those terms to refer to the bad ones at protests. But no matter who you support in the election tonight, you are likely limited in how to react. Sure, you may attain sheer joy. That's possible. You may be filled with joy and happiness. Total feeling of complete pleasure. I saw it in an election night party in 2008 when Barack Obama was elected president. Sure, it made me feel sad as the elated mood in the room seemed to be buoyed by the odd and misplaced idea that somehow President Obama was going to end the war on terror, something he never said he would do, and bring about universal health care for all, which we knew the insurance industry would never allow and the Democrats' idea of public-private partnerships and neoliberalism would destroy as well as have a detrimental effect on, we all thought it was going to at least have a detrimental effect on racism, the Obama presidency. But again, here we are today, and the U.S. looks as racist as ever, if not more so. Rather than joy, what we might feel tonight, or whenever this vote is decided, is a rush of victory that our team won, and it's time to go on social media and arrogantly boast of our win, rubbing our enemies' noses in it doing everything we can to make those losers feel awful and hopefully ruining their night's sleep. And if the provocation was successful enough, maybe ruining their next day as well from the moment they wake up and realize the result of tonight's vote. Of course, many of us may be frightened at the prospects of our future under whoever wins. We may end up crying, mortified, cowering with our imaginations of fascist or anarchist oppression, which are far more vivid and we can articulate a lot better than our actual political imaginations, which says a lot about what it is like to live within whatever you want to call this screwed-up system that surrounds and controls us. Last but far from least, there might be outrage of the election's result as that internal fear is turned outward into anger at the other, and that anger might turn violent. Back in 2000, when the election was being stolen from the people, and no, George W. Bush did not win Florida by 537 votes, despite what even the liberal media wants you to believe. University of Study, a uh, University of Chicago study, uh, showed that Gore, Al Gore, actually won Florida after all the votes were recounted back in 2000. But back in 2000, TV anchors were somehow proud of the way the U.S. reacted to the situation in Florida, where Republican Party operatives were sent to stop vote counting, violently stop vote counting. But the media reported on Jesse Jackson's meddling for daring to go to Florida in order to observe what was happening on the ground. Jackson wasn't in a mob attacking vote-counting facilities, as white GOP operatives were. But to the media, Jesse Jackson's mere presence was a threat to democracy, while not reporting on the violent mob. 
the sources of the pundits' pride on that election night during that election season, despite all of the problems with voting, despite all of the purposeful voter suppression, the patriotic talking heads were proud back in 2000 to announce that the election and transition of power had happened yet again, as it always does in the United States. That transition happened peacefully, despite what you could see happening on the TV screens. And to be honest, I don't know if I can put myself through that kind of election night patriotism, that celebration of democracy, that defining moment of what it means to be American. I don't know if I can do it all over again, because every time I watch these stupid election night tallies come in, all I am reminded of is this is not democracy now or ever. This is hell. Coming up, anarchy is not disorder and chaos, but a critique of the tyranny of daily life. Jess will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is what happens? What happens this election night? The This week's question from hell, again, what happens? All answers will be read on air this week. But if you want to win a special prize, get your accurate prediction in by 5 p.m. U.S. Central Time today. The person with their most accurate prediction as to what happens in this election will win a new gray on black This Is Hell t-shirt. And then at the end of Thursday's show, we will be announcing our overall favorite answer to this week's question from hell. What happens? You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email it to either of us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. But again, we must have your answer in for accuracy by 5 p.m. today, Central Time, and for our favorite answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's second winner. Jess will be sharing your answer to this week's question from hell, following our guest. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. We are told anarchy is dangerous. Anarchists are a threat to our safety and security. Over the last couple of days, businesses across the United States were boarding up windows. Throughout the summer, we are told that along with Marxists, anarchists were looting and rioting with no perceptible goal but mayhem none of which makes sense on the face of it and leads you to wonder, what is anarchism? Because when it is mentioned in the media, it is never defined other than being an epithet used against protesters who they don't like. Here to help us understand a political idea that is older than anarchy itself, political theorist Ruth Kinna is author of The Government of No One, The Theory and Practice of Anarchism. Welcome to This Is Hell, Ruth. Well, thank you for having me. Ruth is the author of William Morris, The Art of Socialism, and co-editor of the journal Anarchist Studies. She is a professor of political theory at, and I am going to see if I am going to pronounce this correctly, Loughborough University, uh, work, working in the Department of Politics, History, and International Relations, where she specializes in political philosophy. You start by mentioning the Seattle protests back in 1999. You write, in 1999, activists in Seattle spectacularly sabotaged the meeting of the World Trade Organization. The event launched what became known as the Alter Globalization or Global Justice Campaign, a complex anti-capitalist movement of movements widely described as anarchist. Now, we covered the WTO protests live here on This Is Hell. The WTO still exists. 
So how did the battle in Seattle have an impact on the political conversation, maybe more importantly, on our political imagination? What is missed when we don't recognize the impact Seattle may have had on the overall political imagination? So I think one of the things about Seattle is it reminded people that you don't need political parties in order to to organise actively and and politically and to to make a statement and to express your your ideas and I think the reason that the uh, the the global justice movement was was thought of as being anarchist was because it was um, it was a network it was horizontal it was leaderless it didn't seem to have a, a political program it had a set of principles and benchmarks but basically it it, it brought people together across the world without any um, sort of central um, organization if you like it, it was a grassroots movement and that was why I think it was associated with anarchism so is anarchism then is it a political ideology is it a political concept or is it just an ongoing conversation about how to attain egalitarianism I think it's 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 a it's a practice. It's a, a way of thinking about socialist politics, and I think there's a um, a distinctive tradition of 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 thinking within socialism that we can we can call anarchist, um, which is uh, distinguished partly by its its rejection of of central party organisation and, and programmatic politics, but but importantly, the the reason that it's it's marked by that is because anarchists don't seek to take power. Uh, they seek to empower um, people and each other uh, from the bottom up. Uh, they're not interested in in seizing control in order to to tell people what to do. Do you think that is a big part of why it's misunderstood? Because everybody else is all about just, especially here in the United States today, it's all about just winning, no matter what impact they might have on democracy or not. I think it's partly, I think it's misunderstood partly because it seems to reject everything that we hold as essential to our political order. So in rejecting political parties, in rejecting the institutions of the state, in rejecting the institutions of government, it appears to be entirely negative. But I think that's I think that's a mistake. I think the other reason that it's it's misunderstood is is simply because anarchists adopted for their own uh, to describe their own politics a, a term that was already associated with chaos. So the idea that um, we have these political institutions in order to avoid tearing each other to pieces because we can't cooperate uh, by ourselves and we can't organize our political affairs ourselves is quite a, a profound um, a prejudice, if you like, and one that anarchists want to attack, but uh, which is it's very difficult to, to um, encourage people to, to re-examine those kinds of ideas. So why embrace a term that already meant chaos? <laughs> it's a good question. I suppose because, um, I mean, when it was first adopted in the 1840s, um, I mean, we didn't have the same sort of institutions. And this was in this was in Europe in the 1840s, in France in particular. I mean, those those institutions didn't exist in the same um, degree. But but nevertheless, I think one of the things that the anarchists wanted to draw attention to was the fact that they they weren't just another um, player on the ideological scene that they were they were fundamentally questioning the principles of order that were being advocated pretty much by everybody whether they thought of themselves as as conservative or republican or or radical or, or however they designated their politics uh, that the fundamental assumption that uh, that people can't cooperate and develop institutions 
forms and practices uh, by themselves is is the idea that they wanted to to question and to challenge. And I think that's why they adopted the you know the, the provocative term of, of, of anarchist. So you write that uh, the movement was by turns uh, dismissed as unbalanced and unthinking when it comes to anarchism. I, my original question was going to be, what does that reveal about, uh, you know, why is there this belief that anarchism is unbalanced and uh, unthinking? But I, I think a better question to ask is, what does that reveal about the person who sees anarchism that way as unbalanced and unthinking? What does that reveal about their understanding of anarchism? I guess it's a knee-jerk reaction, isn't it? And and the, I mean, I, I think, you know, a lot of movements or a lot of movements that challenge the status quo are often um, dismissed as being uh, idealistic, utopian, uh, unreasoning, uh, impossibilist. And, and, you know, we can look back in history and, and see a sort of a whole um, catalogue of these kinds of movements. I mean, it's not that long ago that, that people who call themselves Democrats were being dismissed as, as, as crazy people. Uh, who who were advocating mob rule and and, and the disorder of, of 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 natural hierarchy as 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 if that was uh, an an impossible dream. So I think there's a kind of a a knee jerk reaction and, a, and an unwillingness, I guess, to to engage with the literature of anarchism and and the movements that anarchism has spawned. You also mentioned the aggressive and often violent reaction that police have to anarchy, uh, to anarchists, to anarchism. Does anarchism represent a violent threat to the state and the police are merely reacting to that provocation by anarchism? Is the aggressive police reaction to anarchists understandable as anarchism is seen as and is a real threat to the state? I think it's interesting. I mean, the history tells me, at least, that that the that the I mean, anarchism is that there is a violence that's associated with anarchism. Anarchism associated in the nineteenth century with a wave of of high profile assassinations um, and with um, with the advocacy of of violence, if you like, against uh, leading uh, politicians. But I think the background to to anarchism and the uh, the way that that history unravels is explained uh, by the repression that was meted out against uh, anarchists and, and not just anarchists, other socialists too, um, in the first place. So the key events that that crystallise anarchism in in Europe and America are actually sort of um, examples of of state aggression, which which in turn causes its own reaction, um, and that's that's really how the uh, the reputation for violence grows. Uh, so it's undoubtedly true that there is a, a current within anarchism which is uh, confrontational and which has taken up arms. But uh, compared to the violence that's been meted out against them, I think it's 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 really quite unbalanced. And uh, certainly in, in Europe, I mean, the first anarchist bomb, so-called anarchist bomb, was planted by the police. It wasn't planted by an anarchist. And which is also one of the theories when it comes to the Haymarket riots here in the United States or here in Chicago, uh, that that may the first bomb there may have been planted by police as well. That's something that's always been kind of up in the air. But does anarchism then, because you point to these uh, two moments, the Paris Commune as well as the Haymarket riots, does anarchism emerge during crisis? Is anarchism defined by crisis? 
I don't think it's defined by crisis, but I think it's it's quite visible in in moments of crisis. And I, but I think in 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 quite unexpected ways. So if you think that we're in a crisis now caused by the the pandemic, I mean, one of the things that's that's really noticeable about the pandemic is the way in which it's triggered uh, a whole mass of mutual aid associations. That is voluntary organisations that have been organised by community activists and people working in their in their local environments in order to support and help each other. And anarchists would point to those kinds of experiments and say, look, that's that's natural cooperation. That's that's people who want to uh, to make sure that people's needs are met. Uh, that that's it's about people who are giving their time and their energy and their resources without any kind of expectation of of, of return, and we tend to overlook those kinds of examples of anarchy in action and focus instead on the on the kind of the smoking bomb um, in order to kind of give ourselves a thrill, if you like. But 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 anarchy works at all levels and at all times, I think. Um, but it it becomes visible in moments of crisis when actually the state. Uh, fails to to make decisions and when it when it fails to provide the services that it promises. I want to get to uh, a little bit more on that kind of egalitarian thinking and the way that mutual aid works and how we often are engaged in acts of anarchism, though we don't recognize it. But is anarchism a political idea that is criminalized? And what explains why anarchism is more policed, more criminalized than, say, fascism or neo-fascism is? That's, that's also a really interesting question. I think part of the reason or the explanation for that is because anarchists uh, typically challenged all kinds of moral norms and, um, and practices, um, particularly in, in, in areas of, of um, sexual liberation. I mean, they were some of the pioneers of sexual liberation. Uh, they challenged the authority of the church. They challenged all kinds of forms of domination. And, and that made them, um, I think, a real threat to uh, the established order in a way that, that competing for political power in order to you know, change a system of distribution uh, it wasn't quite so frightening somehow, uh, but but groups, small groups, often very small groups of of activists, uh, which often included uh, you know high numbers of women who refused to to adopt marriage laws, who attacked marriage as, as legalized prostitution, all of these kinds of attacks put anarchists really on the uh, on the the outside, if you like. They made them very dangerous and threatening people. Uh, before we continue, I just want to tell you that I, this book, it was very enjoyable. I'm already enjoying our conversation very much. I, the, I, the goal of this show, at least for me, is to learn. And I cannot thank you enough for teaching me so much from this book. You write that being anarchist means challenging the status quo to realize egalitarian principles and foster cooperative, non-dominating behaviors. Is aggressive policing toward anarchists and anarchism, is that because egalitarianism is seen as a violent threat to the state? Is anarchism militant egalitarianism? I think anarchism is militant and I think anarchists are, um, they, they present a challenge to established orders because they adopt a principle of direct action. So instead of working through representative institutions, anarchists argue that you can only resolve um, the, the problems that confront you by, by taking action yourself. And, and that means that you know, you can, you're encouraging people to mobilize uh, in ways that, uh, that seem to be unconstrained. 
Um, otherwise, you know, we normally rely on political parties to or other other kinds of, of, of activist groups to to call a protest, to determine what the, the what the marching order is going to be and, and who's going to speak and when. And an anarchist uh, takes a different kind of approach. And I think that immediately uh, makes the the policing uh, problematic, and I think that's why you get the kinds of aggression that you do from the police uh, when you confront uh, or when you have that kind of uh, mass direct action, um, as opposed to a, a sort of a, an organised uh, rally. Is anarchism a, a political lifestyle, if you will, that can be lived alongside the state? Um, yeah, lifestyle is a problematic term because some people tend to think that lifestyle means uh, almost armchair, that, you know, if you're a lifestyle anarchist, then you're not someone who's um, really engaged in in doing anything apart from uh, taking the, the moniker, if you like, of, of anarchist. But, but it seems to me that actually lifestyle is an important part of anarchism because um, anarchists are, you know, live a live a, a life of of compromise and contradiction to the extent that, you know, they they inhabit worlds that are not of their own making, and they're trying to change those worlds. And so, anything that you can do in your daily life and and in your everyday practices to to express your principles in in a constructive way is something that that takes you. Uh, you know that 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 allows you to to live in good conscience, if you will. So I think you know lifestyle is a necessary part of of, of anarchism. If anarchism's mainspring, as you call it, is individualism, then it is it explicit, explicitly not collective. Is it even anti-collective? Because that, there's <laughs> different ideas that people have about individualism. For instance. Uh, how much of a threat is anarchism to those who may be Trump supporters who are laser focused on any threat to their individual rights? So I think that anarchism is is centrally focused on a notion of individual sovereignty. So um, and the importance of that is that anarchists reject the idea that, that the states can claim sovereignty over individuals. So it's a kind of an abstract commitment, if you like, to the principle that that human beings are the are the measure of their own, or, or, or human beings should be regarded as independent decision makers. They should uh, be allowed to make their judgments by themselves. But of course, anarchists also recognised, or or pretty much all anarchists uh, recognise that that people are not brought up in in uh, kind of as atomized beings we inevitably we're social beings we are brought up into into families into associations uh, we always live our life in in cooperation with other people so uh, the, the 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 trick if you like of, of anarchist politics is to to try and ensure that when we organize our affairs uh, sociably and collectively we do so in ways that allow each individual insofar as is possible to express their sovereignty in collaboration with others. So it's a, it's, it is necessarily a collective um, practice, it seems to me, and one that can never um, find a, a resolution to the tension between uh, individual judgment and collective well-being, because that relationship is always mediated by by different kinds of complex power relationships which anarchists are always trying to make themselves aware of so that they can avoid any one particular interest dominating the rest so 
I mean, to come to your point about about um, rights, I think the difference between an anarchist view of rights and, uh, and a conventional view of rights is that the anarchist doesn't think that a right is something that you have by virtue of the state. I think, you know, the anarchist tends to think that a right is something that that you assert, but you assert it not against other people, but in order to um, to tackle problems of domination where one particular group would seek to control and make decisions for the rest. You write how horrible men of business were interested in amassing money. Small producers were not. As members of their communities, they were not only less likely to exploit. In the case with the Grave Commission, which is a story into itself, but we'll get back to that later. The bereaved but uniquely equipped to express their feelings. Behind this critique was the idea that social relationships, that's the important part, should encourage association and amity and minimize exploitation and utility. So... Does anarchy believe a society can run on amity and without the exploitation of money? Is anarchism then necessarily anti-money? I think anarchism is, is necessarily anti-monopoly. Uh, so, I mean, I mean, anarchists disagree um, about the extent to which you can have a monetized economy, which is not going to lead some people to be able to accumulate uh, far more than others, and therefore breed its own kinds of inequality and and build incentives uh, to to cement those advantages, if you like. So, I mean, the mainstream of the anarchist movement tends to be, uh, in principle, committed to uh, finding ways of 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 limiting that possibility through institutional practices. So, I mean, in other words, I mean, I suppose the mainstream of the anarchist movement tends to be communist in principle um, because of the, 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 the fear, if you like, that any kind of um, other principle of exchange it will will necessarily sort of undermine the, the robustness of, of anarchist institutions. Is anarchism more than only a critique of capitalism? Um, well, it seems to me that that having a critique of capitalism is is pretty important. Um, so I think you know I wouldn't want to diminish that, but yeah, I think it is more than a critique of capitalism because I think what anarchism is trying to do is to think of the ways in which. Um, our relationships are not only structured by uh, economic inequalities, but also by non-economic inequalities. So this is a whole social view of the world, uh, which is sensitive to uh, the, the the kinds of ways that we exercise our status, the, the ways in which we uh, we become deferential to each other, the ways in which we seek each other's permissions, uh, the ways in which you know we don't express ourselves for fear of um, of not getting approval. So, you know, and uh, as well as that, I mean, the, the problems that we have with, with ingrained prejudice and, and uh, suspicion of, of, of other people. So anarchism is trying to tackle all of those kinds of um, social fears in order to allow people to, to flourish within, within social groups. So is anarchism then more focused on the kind of dehumanization and control that capitalism and militarism can bring about? Or is it uh, is that what it is? Is, it, is that the beyond capitalism and militarism that anarchism might be more focused on, that kind of dehumanization and control that are, you could say that capitalism and militarism are a subset of? 
so I, the, I mean, the, you can arrange these sort of capitalism, militarism, uh, all of these sorts of institutional um, powers in, in different ways. But I think, you know, absolutely centrally, anarchists are, are very um, uh, attuned to the problem of, of, of central authority, of the idea that there is a, a, fixed, uh, uh, a, a fixed point of command. Um, because the anarchist argument is that for as long as we um, align ourselves to system hierarchical systems which demand that we just do what we're told because we're told to do them, then actually we suspend our conscience, we suspend our better judgment, uh, and we do harm to each other in ways that would become that are unimaginable. Um, and so this this anti-authoritarian thread that 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 runs through anarchism, I think, is really really central to it. We are speaking with political theorist Ruth Kinna. She is author of The Government of No One, The Theory and Practice of Anarchism. Ruth is a professor of political theory at Loughborough University, working in the Department of Politics, History, and International Relations, where she specializes in political philosophy. She's also the author of William Morris, The Art of Socialism, and co-editor of the journal Anarchist Studies. You write one of the attractions of anarchism is that it has no single moment of enlightenment, no before or after science. Why does that, great reference to a Brian Nino album there, by the way. <laughs> uh, so uh, why does that make anarchism so attractive to you that it is before or that there is no before or after science? So one of the things I like about the anarchists is is a, a healthy skepticism, it seems to me, towards um, any uh, doctrinaire system of thought, any kind of dogma, everything can be challenged, everything can be questioned. So while I think that anarchism does have these you know, particular moments which, which crystallise uh, movements in, in America and Europe and, and, and elsewhere, you could, there, are, there are moments also for you know, the Far East and elsewhere, um, what the anarchist is appealing to is a is a sense of of social interaction and sociability that that we can see in all societies uh, and across times and across cultures. Uh, and it's simply the fact that left to their own devices, people will organise themselves as they see fit, uh, and they will be flexible to change in ways that states are rather inflexible, uh, and ways in which states will. Um, want to entrench uh, existing balances of power. So anarchists are not uh, necessarily going to to, to point to to other cultures and and other societies and other practices and say, these people are anarchists. But what they're going to say is that what anarchism expresses is that that basic kind of anthropological truth about self-organisation. You write that anarchists typically resist the categorization of their movements and principles. They are usually suspicious of attempts to fix anarchism's origins, either in time or space, and they reject selective accounts that lavish special attention on particular historical figures. Why? Because labeling looks like an attempt to determine boundaries that anarchists themselves have not fixed because the identification of origins seems an unwelcome first step towards the ideological construction of a set of fixed traditions that anarchists prefer to see as permeable and fluid. And finally, because dating and locating the emergence of anarchism to the foundation of particular groups appears both arbitrary and exclusionary. So to what extent, then, is anarchism not understood because it refuses categorization, refuses, in a sense, to be understood? (laughs) Um, 
I'm not sure. It, I think the what I was trying to say is that um, the attempt to, or the 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 habit that's grown up, I suppose, particularly within academia, uh, in treating anarchism like any other political ideology, um, has had a a negative effect. It's it's tended to focus attention on a set of uh, particular thinkers. Uh, all of whom happen to be white and male. Uh, it tends to um, shoehorn anarchist ideas into frameworks that they don't really fit, um, and it and it tends to um, constrain the the possibilities that anarchists want to say political thought contains through direct engagement and through activity. So, I don't think. Um, that critique means that you can't try and understand anarchism. I think it means that you have to be wary and qualify uh, the the statements, if you like, that 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 can be made about anarchism with any um, certainty. I mean, if you're going to be truthful or or um, uh, consistent with anarchist thinking, there's there's always that question of you know, is, is, so that's the beginning, that's the end. I mean, anarchists don't really think like that. And anarchism itself wants to be more expansive, I think, in its, in its approach to politics. Is anarchy seen as disorder because what we exist in within now is seen as order? Is anarchy an argument against order? I, I guess because of the time that we live in and that I hate hearing this word all the time, Ruth, the term normal or new normal is anarchism an analysis of normal i think an anarchism is is an analysis of of order and it's an analysis that says that the uh the orders that we accept and and celebrate are actually orders that um give power to to particular give enormous power to particular groups and interests uh, which disempower vast numbers of people, uh, which uh, enable uh, systematic exploitation, uh, degradation, which um, result in people being forced to do things that they don't want to do, but which they have no alternative but to do in order to keep themselves afloat in the world. And an anarchism if you like, exposes uh, what it sees to be the lie of of liberal democratic uh, thinking, which says this is the best that we can do. Uh, the anarchist says, no, we can we can do better if we simply uh, work together and and change the systems that we have. If we think, you know, that, that there is a there is an alternative. Uh, there's always an alternative. Humans are creative beings and uh, and they should be allowed to create their own uh, political environments. We are told there is no alternative other than the control, other than the power of the state or capital. So is anarchism then the alternative to the state and to the p control of capital? Um, as, an, as, a, as a sort of a driving force, I think, yeah, they're the, they're the things that, that, that anim well, they're two of the things that, that animate anarchists. But I don't think that um, it's, 
I don't think that anarchists necessarily see that there's a there's a kind of an either or. So I tried to say uh, before there's a there's a process through which we can anarchize our institutions. There are ways that we can behave. There are things that we can do. We can devolve power. We can work together differently. We can change the way we educate each other. We can change the way we listen to each other. We can we can do all kinds of things which um, which are directed towards. Uh, undoing uh, and uh, challenging those kinds of systems of power, which we call state and capitalism. Yes. So uh, you mentioned property and uh, different understanding of property. You write distinguishing the exclusive right to private ownership, property in dominion, from the temporary right uh, to possession or property in use. It was argued that the former necessarily uh, restricted property to those who first claimed it and their beneficiaries. For everybody else, it was impossible. In contrast, because possession denied exclusive claims, property was left open to all. The existing regime was wrong in principle and injurious in practice. Does anarchism seek for us all to view property in use, not in dominion? And do I get to have stuff with temporary right to possession (laughs) over private ownership? Yeah, there's a there's a famous uh, famous argument about whether you can have a, your own toothbrush. Yes, you can have your own toothbrush. You can have stuff. What you can't do is 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 claim things for you and your own in perpetuity, uh, and you can't claim property, the exclusive right to property, um, or what anarchists would would say is sort of property and waste. That you know simply because you have the wherewithal to uh, to enclose something or to accumulate something that you can then decide to do with with that what you will, uh, re- irrespective of the harms it may do to to anybody else. So the idea is, um, I mean, the, the 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 statement "property is theft" was was originally made by uh, P. J. Proudhon in 1840, um, and his argument was that. Uh, you know, you could, if you undid the regime of of exclusive property rights, then then people could claim property in in the use of the things that they uh, needed to to work, uh, the use of the things they needed to sustain themselves. But they would never be able to pass that on, uh, and they would never be able to to claim that any part of the world or anything that was produced in it. Um, had derived exclusively from their own efforts because actually everything that's produced in the world is is produced by collective effort. So I think you know there are plenty of examples of of um, of this kind of commoning, if you like, of this this acceptance that the that the world and and the things in it are are no one's property and should not be regarded as anyone's property, uh, and that that's a that's a powerful and important claim, particularly in a in a um, an ecological crisis. Uh, it seems to me that that that's um, one of the first steps that we should make: recognize that people can't actually claim ownership of the planet. You quote one of those convicted in the Haymarket trials, saying that originally the earth and its contents were held in common by all men. Then came a change brought about by violence, robbery, and whole, wholesale murder, called war. How aware are we of that originality that the earth of the earth were it was all held in common by all people? Because that kind of concept keeps coming up on our show with our guests. And it just seems like every I don't think people are aware that there was that kind of original common way of living. So so how much do we actually realize that was a way that we used to live before war, before capital? 
I think that's right. I think we don't. I think we tend to sort of, uh, we assume, um, or we default, not assume, I think we default to a to an idea of property in, in ways that we don't, you know, we, we, we just don't even question anymore. Um, it, it just seems so natural and normal until someone challenges us that 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 actually we can we can own these things we can own vast tracts of land we can we can move from one part of the globe to another and and declare land empty and then take it away from people who happen to live in it um so and i think these these ideas are built into our into our mainstream political theory um and it's interesting to see how how they how they're defended in in historical political thought um but we very rarely return now to the idea of of common ownership and and it's you know it's things like I mean small things but, but important things like creative commons that remind us uh, of this kind of common possession uh, and the importance of being able to to freely exchange. You write that in Chicago, the demonization of the underclass dovetailed with the criminalizing of anarchism. References to the anarchist beast and the anarchist peril began to circulate widely in the press in cheap popular literatures and political commentaries. Michael Schock, the police chief who headed up the Haymarket case, profited from the expertise he acquired in Chicago by publishing an international history of Red Terror. And Ruth, I was the uh, best man at a wedding of a descendant of Michael Schock, believe it or not. Uh, how much impact? That's kind of believable. I'm in Chicago. It's kind of like swinging a dead cat and um, you'll hit something. Uh, how much uh, impact do you think that propaganda had and still has lingering as a le- legacy today, whatever whatever we think, if we've read his books or not. How much do you think the legacy is from those writings by Michael Schock? You talk about him touring around the world. It seems like he spread the word and the news of the evil of anarchism. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think it was an important book um, because, I mean, Haymarket itself was, was a... Um, a prominent event. I mean, it, it, it gained uh, attention right across right across Europe. It, it was one of the the touchstones for uh, for the socialist movement. I mean, whether whether people call themselves anarchist or not, it was a you know it was an incredibly important event. So it it I think you know these things don't exist in a vacuum though. So it's an important book, but it's but it spoke to a uh, an idea of 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 anarchism that that. Uh, was gaining traction almost independently, if you like. And I think one of the things that's quite interesting about Shaq's book is when he goes to London and he talks about the anarchist communities there uh, and he goes down into the east end of London to, to Whitechapel, uh, which was an area of, of um, in the 1880s and, and 90s, it was an area of Jewish settlement, predominantly Jewish settlement from East European and um, Russian immigrants Um and it was associated with, you know, a strong anti-Semitism and 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 anti-immigrant kind of sentiment, if you like. And I think these things get wrapped up in the critique of anarchism, and that's partly how they gain traction. Uh, it it seems to appeal to a, uh, or the 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 anti-anarchist argument seem to appeal to a a reality about the about this underclass that that resonates with with you know with people who have power and and who consider themselves cultured and and civilized and um uh apart from you know who want to distinguish themselves from from that kind of poverty and uh, as they see it uh you know sort of degradation one last question for you ruth we've been speaking with political theorist ruth kinna author of the government of no one the theory and practice of anarchism ruth is the author of william morris the art of socialism and co-editor of the journal anarchist studies 
So one last question for you, Ruth. And as we do with all of our guests, our final mm-hmm. question is what we call the question from hell. The question you might, we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience might hate your response. Uh, is anarchism, well, let's see. Liberalism and republicanism have proven not to be able to stop tyranny. Anarchism is a response to the tyranny that liberalism and republicanism have been unable to stop. Why do we tolerate liberalism and republicanism if they have not been able to stop tyranny? Yeah, that's a really, really interesting question and and one that anarchists asked also in um in the the interwar and the immediate post-war period, you know, why was it that uh, that that these uh, these regimes, these these liberal regimes, were when I, I unable to to resist um, fascists uh, across Europe, and I think it's it's a a faith, if you like. I mean, one of the answers, I guess, is is a uh, it it relies on a our trust relies in a, a faith in institutional um, honesty that simply doesn't exist in in politics, and it only takes one group or uh, one set of organisations to to seize hold of those institutions and uh, wield that power for their own um, for their own ends. I mean, so the anarchists. Is is like the liberal in the sense that the anarchist shares with the liberal the idea that 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 power corrupts or power tends to corrupt and absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely, but disagrees with the liberal that the answer to that then is to to try and use power against those who would be um, who would not not use that power with virtue if you like. So the anarchist says the only thing that you can do to resist the the abuse of power is to is to 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 devolve it in ways that that make it very very difficult for for anybody to monopolize. This has been a really fascinating conversation, and I really enjoyed your book a lot. We've been speaking with political theorist Ruth Kinna, author of The Government of No One, The Theory and Practice of Anarchism. I cannot thank you enough for being on our show today. And I just want to point out to our listening audience that we've been talking about some of the traditions of anarchy. We've been talking about our lack of understanding of anarchism. But Ruth's book has whole sections on practices and prospects when it comes to anarchism. So even if we are some have somebody who's listening right now who is already a practicing anarchist who is very well versed in this. There is a lot in this book for you as well, Ruth. Again, I cannot thank you enough for being on our show this week. This is really fantastic writing. And thank you so much for being on our show. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. All right. Take care, Ruth. Yeah, you too. Money is the root of all evil and capitalism is all about money. So you do the math. This is hell. This week's question from hell is what happens? What happens? As in what happens tonight? election night when the votes start coming in this week's question from hell what happens all answers are going to be read on air this week but if you want to win a special prize get your accurate prediction the most accurate prediction in by 5 p.m u.s central time today the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell of course wins our new grand black this is hell t-shirt but if you have the most accurate response to this week's question from hell and it's in by 5 p.m u.s central time today 
you will also win our new Gray on Black This Is Hell t-shirt. You can check out the new Gray on Black This Is Hell t-shirt and all our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. Again, the person who has the most accurate answer sent in to us by 5 p.m. Central today, Tuesday, you will win a new Gray on Black This Is Hell t-shirt, and the person who has our favorite answer to this week's question from hell will be revealed on Thursday, and that person will also win a This Is Hell Gray on Black t-shirt. Jess, how are listeners answering this week's question from hell? right now this week's question from hell is what happens um pete v says i don't care caring is so 2016. (laughs) mason w says bernie wins here's my 20 page think piece on how it's still possible if enough people phone bank and knock doors (laughs) margie just posted uh, a gif of brad pitt (laughs) Um, um joshua l says the bar at the top goes from being all tan to partially red and partially blue some of the tan parts on the map turn red while others turn blue all of the white lines separating those parts stay white the blue and red zeros at the top become other numbers in the hundreds i'm guessing wow probably a very accurate prediction (laughs) probably the most accurate yes (laughs) um andrea j says a big collective sigh of disappointment and annoyance okay jack b says elmo's president um, and again, this week's question is, what happens? Um, Andrew P. says, Trump declares himself the winner before votes begin to be counted. Biden rolls over and plays dead. Trumpers attack democratically-led cities to restart the Civil War. Mm, that might be pretty accurate, too. <laughs> uh, Martin F. Uh, says, Electoral College is a tie, 269 to 269. It would be so 2020. <laughs> <laughs> that would be. Joe B. says, the leaves will fall, the world will continue to burn, and this will still be hell. <laughs> uh, Chris S. says In the end it will not be close enough to try to steal And they won't try very hard um, <laughs> I wonder who they are In that one <laughs> The GOP I think I assume. <laughs> um, Steve H. says Is Jill Stein running <laughs> um, And finally uh, David S. says Not to be crude but the all too obvious answer Is shit happens <laughs> We will have even more of your answers To this week's question from hell On tomorrow's show And again, we will be announcing the winner of who has the most accurate response through 5 p.m. today. And then on Thursday, we'll be announcing our winner of our favorite response at the end of Thursday's show. Following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth, you can see what you will be winning if you have the most accurate or our favorite response to this week's question from hell. Our new gray and black This Is Hell t-shirt by going to thisishell.com. And clicking on support, Jess, has Alex told you who is on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour show at 10 a.m. Chicago time right here at thisishell.com? Unfortunately, he hasn't. We're still working out some kinks, it seems like. <laughs> okay. Uh, the guest will be Hadas Thayer, author of A People's Guide to Capitalism and Introduction to Marxist Economics. We'll also have more of your answers to this week's question from hell on tomorrow's show. You can email your responses to chuck at thisishell.com. You can post them on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet them to us at thisishellradio. 
I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live stream host, Chuck Mertz, producing today's show is Jess, every Tuesday. Thanks to Alex for helping out and training Jess up. Thanks to Jess. Thanks to our guest today, Ruth Kinna. Staring into the abyss, so you don't have to. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.